Book One, Chapter Six of The Branding Iron by Catherine Newland Burt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Six Pierre Takes Steps to Preserve His Property. A log fell forward and Joan lifted her head. She had not come to an end of Isabella's tragedy nor of her own memories but something other than the falling log had startled her, a light crunching step upon the snow. She looked toward the window. For an instant the room was almost dark and the white night peered in at her, its gigantic snow peaks pressing against the long horizontal window panes, and in that instant she saw a face. The fire started up again, the white night dropped away. The face shone close a moment longer, then it too disappeared. Joan came to her feet with pounding pulses. It had been Pierre's face, but at the same time the face of a stranger. He had come back five days too soon, and something terrible had happened. Surely his chancing to see her with her book would not make him look like that. Besides, she was not wasting oil. She had stood up, but at first she was incapable of moving forward. For the first time in her life she knew the paralysis of unreasoning fear. Then the door opened and Pierre came in out of the crystal night. "'What brought you back so soon?' asked Joan. "'Too soon for you, eh?' He strode over to the hearth where she had lain, took up the book, struck it with his hand, as though it had been a hated face, and flung it into the fire. "'I seen you through the window,' he said. "'So you've been happy reading while I've been away?' "'I'll get you supper. I'll light the lamp,' Joan stammered. Pierre's face was pale. His black hair lay in wet streaks on his temples. He must have traveled at furious speed through the bitter cold to be in such a sweat. There was a mysterious, controlled disorder in his look, and there arose from him the odor of strong drink. But he was steady and sure in all his movements, and his eyes were deadly cool and reasonable. Only it was the reasonableness of insanity, reasonableness based on the wildest premises of unreason. "'I don't want no supper, nor no light,' he said. Firelight's enough for you to read Parsons' books by. It's enough for me to do what I oughter done long afore tonight. She stood in the middle of the small, log-walled room, arrested in the act of lighting a match, and stared at him with troubled eyes. She was no longer afraid. After all, strange as he looked, more strangely as he talked, he was her Pierre, her man. The confidence of her heart had not been seriously shaken by his coldness and his moods during this winter. There had been times of fierce, possessive tenderness. She was his own woman, his property. At this low counting did she rate herself. A sane man does no injury to his own possessions. And Pierre, of course, was sane. He was tired, angry, he had been drinking. 
Her ignorance, her inexperience, led her to put little emphasis on the effects of the poison sold at the town saloon. When he was warm and fed and rested, he would be quite himself again. She went about preparing a meal in spite of his words. He did not seem to notice this. He had taken his eyes from her at last and was busy with the fire. She, too, busy and reassured by the familiar occupation, ceased to watch him. Her pulses were quiet now. She was even beginning to be glad of his return. Why had she been so frightened? Of course, after such a terrible journey alone in the bitter cold, he would look strange. Her father, when he came back smelling of liquor, had always been more than usually morose and unlike his everyday self. He would sit over the stove and tell her the story of his crime. They were horrible homecomings, horrible evenings, but the next morning they would seem like dreams. Tomorrow this strangeness of Pierre's would be mist-like and unreal. "'I seen your sin-buster in town,' said Pierre. He was squatting on his heels over the fire which he had built up to a great blaze and glow, and he spoke in a queer sing-song tone through his teeth. "'He asked after you real kind. He wanted to know how you was getting on with the education he's been handing out to you. I tell him that you was right satisfied with me and my ways and had quit his books. I didn't know as you was having such a good time during my absence." Joan was cruelly hurt. His words seemed to fall heavily upon her heart. "'I wasn't having a good time. I was missing you, Pierre,' said she, in a low tremolo of grieving music. "'Them books, they seemed like they was all the company I had.' "'You looked like you was missing me,' he sneered. The sin-buster and I had words about you, Joan. Yes'm, he gave me quite a line of preaching about you, Joan, as how you had oughter develop your own life in your own way, along the lines laid out by him. I told him as how I knowed best what was right and fittin' for my own wife, as how, with a mother like yourn, you needn't watch and mourn learnin', as how you belong to me and not to him. And, says he, she don't belong to any man, Pierre Landis. He said, neither to you nor to me. She belongs to her own self. I'll see that she belongs to me, I said. I'll fix her so she'll know it, and every other feller will. At that he turned from the fire and straightened to his feet. Joan moved backward slowly to the door. He had made no threatening sign or movement, but her fear had come overwhelmingly upon her, and every instinct urged her to flight. But before she touched the handle of the door, he flung himself with deadly swift force and silence across the room and took her in his arms. With all her wonderful young strength, Joan could not break away from him. He dragged her back to the hearth, tied her elbows behind her with the scarf from his neck, that very scarf he had worn when the dawn had shed a wistful beauty upon him, waiting for her on a morning not so very long ago. Joan went weak. "'Pierre,' 
she cried pitifully. "'What are you going to do to me?' He roped her to the heavy post of a set of shelves built against the wall. Then he stood away, breathing fast. "'Now, whose gal are you, Joan Carver?' he asked her. "'You know I'm yours, Pierre,' she sobbed. "'You got no need to tie me to make me say that.' I got to tie you to make you do more and say it. I got to make sure you are it. Hellfire won't take the sureness out of me after this. She turned her head, all that she could turn. He was bending over the fire, and when he straightened she saw that he held something in his hand, a long bar of metal, white at the shaped end. At once her memory showed her a broad glow of sunset falling over Pierre at work. "'There'll be stock all over the country marked with them two bars,' he had said. "'The two-bar brand. Don't you forget it.' She was not likely to forget it now. She shut her eyes. He stepped close to her and jerked her blouse down from her shoulder. She writhed away from him, silent in her rage and fear and fighting dumbly. She made no appeal. At that moment her heart was so full of hatred that it was hardened to pride. He lifted his brand and set it against the bare flesh of her shoulder. Then terribly she screamed. Again, when he took the metal away, she screamed. Afterwards there was a dreadful silence. Joan had not lost consciousness. Her healthy nerves staunchly received the anguish and the shock. Nor did she make any further outcry. She pressed her forehead against the sharp edge of the shelf. She drove her nails into her hands, and at intervals she writhed from head to foot. Circles of pain spread from the deep burn on her shoulder, spread and shrank, to spread and shrink again. The bones of her shoulder and arm ached terribly. Fire still seemed to be eating into her flesh. The air was full of the smell of scorched skin so that she tasted it herself. And hotter than her hurt, her heart burned consuming its own tenderness and love and trust. When this pain left her, when she was free of her bonds, no force nor fear would hold her to Pierre. She would leave him as she had left her father. She would go away. There was no place for her to go, but what did that matter so long as she might escape from this horrible place and this infernal tormentor? She did not look about to see the actuality of Pierre's silence. She thought that he had dropped the brand and was sitting near the table with his face hidden. How long the stillness of pain and fury and horror lasted, there was no one to reckon. It was most startlingly broken by a voice. "'Who screamed for help?' it said, and at the same instant a draft of icy air smote Joan. The door had opened with suddenness and violence. With difficulty she mastered her pain and turned her head. Pierre had staggered to his feet. Opposite him, framed against the open door filled with the wan whiteness of the snow, stood a spare, tall figure. 
The man wore his fur collar turned up about his chin and ears, his fur cap pulled down about his brow, a sharp aquiline nose stood out above frozen mustaches, keen and brilliant eyes searched the room. He carried his gun across his arm in readiness, and snuffed the air like a suspicious hound. Then he advanced a step toward Pierre. "'What devil's work have you been at?' said he, his voice cutting the ear in its sharpness of astonished rage, and his hand slid down along the handle of his gun. Pierre, watching him like a lynx, sidestepped, crouched, whipped out his gun, and fired. At almost the same second the other man's gun went off. Pierre dropped. This time Joan's nerves gave way, and the room, with its smell of scorched flesh, of powder, and of frost, went out from her horrified senses. For a moment the stranger's stern face and brilliant eyes made the approaching center of a great cloud of darkness. Then it too went out. End of Book One, Chapter Six Recording by Roger Moline